Matthew 6, verses 5 to 15. And I'll ask, if you're able to do so, that you stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Give ear to the word of God. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, uh, every year about this time at the end of the year, as we approach the new year, I try to think of something, kind of a, a topical sermon of sorts, on a subject that I thought might be helpful for us to be taught of and reminded about. And I thought this year a good one, it's always a good one, but that subject that would be good for us to be reminded about the Lord's teaching on was the subject of prayer. Lord willing, uh, we're going to spend at least the next two Sundays, this one and next, looking at what Jesus has to say about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5 through 7. And we're going to look specifically at what he teaches us about in the Lord's Prayer here in Matthew 6. You may know or you may not know that many of the catechisms, the teaching tools that were developed uh, for the edification and the instruction of the church around the time of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, uh, were centered around three, three specific things. And those things that those catechisms typically centered on were the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, and what's the third one? You could probably guess, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, you know, we just started a series a little while back on Sunday nights going through the Heidelberg Catechism. If you look at the Heidelberg Catechism, what three things does it go through explicitly? The Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. The Shorter Catechism, what does it end with? An exposition of the Lord's Prayer. It's not, not an accident. It's not a coincidence that that is the case. Why, why those three things? If you knew those, that that was the case... Why do you think it is that, that our forefathers in the faith have so consistently picked those three things to focus on teaching to the church from the youngest on up to the oldest? Why is, why is it those three things that are so focused on so consistently? Well, there's, there's a lot of reasons for that, but I think this is at least a simple answer. The Apostles' Creed, what does it teach you? What do, we, what do we remind ourselves of every time we recite it on the first Sunday of the month? It gives us the ABCs, the basics of the Christian faith, that is, what we believe concerning God. The Ten Commandments, what do they teach us? They teach us the ABCs, 
not so much of the Christian faith, but the ABCs of the Christian life. How does God want us to live as believers in Christ? And the Lord's Prayer teaches us the ABCs of how to pray. Those are kind of the essentials of the Christian faith and life. It doesn't get much more important than than those three things. Now, that's that third subject, the subject of prayer, uh, it's one that you might think uh, you might think requires very little instruction. But I think we'd be wrong if we thought that. If I were to ask you to give a simple definition of prayer, if, if Luke came up to you, if a three-year-old came up to you after the service and said, what's prayer? What would you say? I would say something like, you know, the most simple definition, it's, it's talking to God. Simple but not, not any less profound. Talking to God. That doesn't sound very complicated, does it? Talking to God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism gives us a definition of prayer. It's a little more full than the one I just gave. It's question 98. What is prayer? Uh, answer. Prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. That's, that's a pretty good definition uh, of, of prayer. And it shouldn't be any surprise uh, by now that what follows after that question all the way to the end of the shorter catechism is, is an exposition of the Lord's Prayer line by line request by request that's what concludes the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism ask yourself this do any of us really know how to pray on our own do we just naturally know how to pray do we you just kind of learn it by osmosis you just naturally know how to pray. No, in fact, we really don't. In fact, Romans 8.26, in that verse, the Apostle Paul has some good news. He says that the Holy Spirit, quote, helps us in our weakness. And what's the first weakness he brings up in that very verse that the Holy Spirit helps us with? It says, uh, quote, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. So one of the things, one of the main things, one of the most important things the Holy Spirit does is he helps us to pray. He even intercedes for us, Paul says, because we don't know how to pray and don't know what to pray for as we ought. Left to ourselves without instruction, without the help of the Holy Spirit, we don't know how to approach God in prayer rightly. We just don't. We might think we do, but we don't. And no doubt that's why there's so much instruction in the Bible on the subject of prayer. We could be here all day listing passages over and over and over about how to pray. The whole book of Psalms, in a lot of ways, not every single one, but most of them, they're, they're songs, but they're really prayers. They're addressed, most of them, to God directly in many, many parts. Now, our text in Matthew chapter 6 here in the Sermon on the Mount, in our text here, the Lord Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. Think about that. Like if anybody, if you, you thought it was anybody on this earth that would know how to pray, it would be them, and yet he still spent the time to teach them how to pray. And he also teaches them, as we're going to see, how not to pray. Not how to avoid praying, but how to pray, how not to pray the wrong way. And that alone should convince us of our need for instruction and even reminders in instruction on how we should pray, and that so much of Christ's Sermon on the Mount, those three chapters, is taken up in the subject of prayer, should also be a reminder to us about how much we need to be instructed in prayer and how to pray. 
So if you're a relatively new believer in Christ this morning, if you haven't been a Christian that long, maybe you never thought about this, but this could serve, I hope this will serve as kind of an introductory course in prayer, to use college terms, prayer 101, maybe you could call this. If you're a long-time believer in Christ, and maybe think that you know everything there is to know about prayer, although none of us would claim that, at least not openly, uh, hopefully you too will benefit from a refresher course I hope I benefited from it as well on the subject of prayer. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you might know who that is. He says this, When a man is speaking to God, he he is at his very acme. It is the highest activity of the human soul, and therefore it is at the same time the ultimate test of a man's true spiritual condition. There is nothing that tells the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. Read that last line there again. There is nothing that tells the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. I'm sure that's convicting, maybe even more than it is comforting in some ways. You know, think about this. How we pray, I think this is what our text is going to point out to us. How we pray, assuming we pray, how we pray reveals what we really believe in our heart of hearts about God. What you really believe about God when push comes to shove comes through in how you pray. What we believe about God and what you believe about yourself in relation to God is going to shape how you pray. This is what the Lord shows us here in, in, in our text. Now we're going to look at at least three things, hopefully, in our text. This morning we're going to look at first in verses 5 to 6, the hypocrite's prayer. The hypocrite's prayer. Secondly, we're going to look at the heathen's prayer or the pagan's prayer, verses 7 to 8. And then we're going to look briefly at, this morning, the Lord's Prayer in verses 9 to 15, although we'll look at that in more detail, next, Lord willing, next Sunday. Now, the first two kinds of prayer are the kinds that we are to avoid. They are the kinds of prayers that we are to repent of. The latter, the Lord's Prayer, is that great pattern prayer that Jesus gave uh, to us in order to teach us the basics of all truly Christian prayer. So let's look at the first thing, the hypocrite's prayer in verses 5 to 6. There's two wrong approaches he gives us to prayer that he wants us to avoid and repent of. And the first one is he tells us not to pray like hypocrites. Look at verses 5 to 6. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now the the Greek word for hypocrites, it's really a transliteration, uh, our English word is a transliteration of it, it sounds the same. It's the word that was used of a stage actor, of a stage actor. Actors sometimes used to wear masks for their roles on stage, uh, if you're like me, uh, if you grew up watching uh, that great intellectual show, The Three Stooges, before each show they had the thing with the happy and the sad masks. That's what that was referring to. It was like a plastic mask you would hold over your face if you were an actor. That The word hypocrite meant it, be, it came to be used of a stage actor, and so it came to have the connotation of doing something for show or being fake. So all actors are hypocrites. You can tell them. Uh, we might be tempted to think, uh, I know I, I kind of thought this way, that hypocrites just don't pray. You might think that, right? But hypocrites, they probably just don't pray, but it's not what Jesus says at all, is it? In fact, Jesus says they love to pray. 
quite the opposite. They love praying. He says they love to stand and pray. Verse 5. They may not love private prayer on their own in their prayer closet, so to speak. And they may neglect private prayer altogether, but they love to pray in public. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I can avoid that one easy. I hate praying in public. Right? I, I would never, I would die before I would get up front in church and pray out loud. Uh, only the, the, the brave or the, the foolish are willing to do that. I don't think that's the, the import of what he's saying here. Um, how does a hypocrite pray? Jesus says they love to stand, to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Notice the posture he mentions. They, they love to stand and pray. Now he's not, if, if he's forbidding standing up and praying, I'm in trouble because I do it every Sunday, right? That's not what he's uh, talking about. His concern isn't so much with the posture, praying or kneeling or sitting or any such thing. It's the reason, the motive for the standing up and, and praying. What's the motive for standing? Look at the places where they choose to stand and pray. And, you know, who's he really have in mind here? When he says the hypocrites, he's talking about the Pharisees and the scribes. He's talking about the religious professionals. And that would have been a shock to his hearers. That should be a shock to us to think of that. He's saying, it's almost like he's saying, don't be like your pastor. You know, don't be like the guy up front. That, that would get your attention. He's saying, don't be like that. But where do they stand? In the synagogues and even at the street corners? You know, some of you are involved in real estate. What's the saying in real estate? Three things that are most important. Location, location, location. Well, to the hypocrites, the location was one of their main things. They wanted to stand up at the synagogues and the street corners. And why is that? That's pretty bold, right? That's a witness. They're not just in church. They're out in the streets doing it. And But why is it? Because they want to be, what does he say? That they might be seen by others. To see and be seen. They wanted to be seen for what they were doing. The hypocrite is more concerned with appearances and what other people think of them than what God thinks. They're more worried with what other people think of them than what God thinks. In other words, he or she... The hypocrite is more concerned with how things look than with how things really are. That's something that goes not just with prayer, but in lots of ways. That is a, a characteristic of many in our day and age. It's all about appearances. We have to look successful. We have to play the part. Well, that also happens in prayer. Charles Spurgeon once wrote this. He says, it is little short, little short of blasphemy to make devotion an occasion for display. Fine prayers are generally very wicked prayers. Fine prayers are generally very wicked prayers. How is the prayer of the hypocrite answered? That's an, if you're going to pray, you want to be answered, right? How is the hypocrite's prayer answered? Jesus says in verse 5, Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. They've already received it when they prayed. Uh, what's he saying there? He's saying that the prayer that they're offering up isn't being offered to God in the first place. Who are they praying to really? Not literally, but they're praying to the other people. The, peop- the, the one who they're trying to be heard by is the people around them, not God at all. And so their reward was just that, being heard by other people. God doesn't bother answering because they weren't praying to him in the first place. If we want God to hear and answer our prayers, we must not play, pray like hypocrites. We have to beware of praying to impress other people. In verse 6, Jesus says, But when you pray, 
Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Now, is Jesus outlawing public prayer? No. I think, remember, you have to interpret Scripture by Scripture, take the whole Bible for what it says about any subject, including prayer. Is he saying that we shouldn't pray with other people or in groups? Do we have to cancel our Friday prayer meeting? I hope that never happens. I hope we have to expand it. No, the, the Lord's Prayer, which he gives only a few verses later, which we're going to look at later on today and also next week, I hope, uh, it teaches us not just to pray for each other, but it teaches us to pray with each other, doesn't it? The Lord's Prayer is intended primarily as a corporate prayer, as a prayer that we pray together. Think about this. Look at the prayer again. Think about it as you, as you prayed. Everything in the prayer is in the plural, not the singular. He says we are to pray to our Father in heaven. We are to pray that he would give us this day our daily bread and forgive what? Us, our debts as we, not I, not just I, also forgive and have forgiven our debtors. It's all plural. It's almost, in a sense, you could say it's impossible to pray it. Not impossible to pray it by yourself, but it's intended as a, a public corporate prayer of the church. So Jesus is not condemning public prayer. Uh, what he's doing is telling us that our public prayer should be the tip of the iceberg. He's saying that we are ultimately to pray for an audience and to an audience of one. You know, it's it's all it's all well and good. I almost said this morning that uh, that the only, we should pray as if the only one who could hear us is God. I don't think that's quite true. It's I think it's good and helpful that our public prayers together in the church should be edifying to all of us sitting here. But even they, even those kinds of prayers like we pray here in the service should be aimed primarily at God and not at each other in any way. If we're, if we're truly praying to God, we won't be trying to impress those around us with how we pray. And that's a temptation that's much more subtle than we might think that it is. Well, the second kind of prayer that Jesus wants us to avoid is not just the hypocrite's prayer, but the heathen's prayer. In verses 7 to 8, Jesus says, And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. We don't ever inform God about something that He doesn't already know. Now, when He says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, what, what's a Gentile? Sometimes we use certain words and we assume everybody knows what that means. A Gentile was a non-Jew. And Gentiles generally were and are, uh, in a lot of ways, idolaters or pagans. In other words, they worship false gods. They don't worship the one true and living God who has revealed himself in the scriptures. They worshiped and they prayed to false gods, and it showed in how they prayed. What does Jesus mean here by heaping up empty phrases? The NIV says, do not keep on babbling like pagans, uh, the key to a right understanding of what Jesus is saying there is found in the, in the second half of verse 7 when he says, they think that they will be heard. Why? Because of their many words. You know, if they repeat the same thing over and over long enough, you know, God is, is kind of duty-bound, or maybe he'll get tired of, of hearing them over and over again, and he'll answer. You know, it, that empty phrases, that's something that happens in, in Christian, nominally Christian churches. You know, if you grew up Roman Catholic, how many of you said certain prayers, rosaries and whatnot, over and over and over? Sometimes the, the priest would tell you, say, you know, how many rosaries? Say, how many Our Fathers? As if that's meritorious. As if, if you do this enough times, 
God's on the hook, and he'll, he'll answer. You'll have earned his answer. Well, the, the main idea here is that prayer is not just a mechanical process. That's, that's the way idolaters pray. God is not informed, impressed, or manipulated by the wordiness or length of our prayers. Heathen prayer, pagan prayer, is the same kind of prayer uttered in the Old Testament by the prophets of Baal. Remember the prophets of Baal in this contest of sorts, the battle at Mount Carmel, you had Elijah and you had the, the prophets of Baal. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 26 to 29, it says this, they, the priests of Baal, they took the bull that was, remember this was a contest, they both had a bull at an altar, and the God who answered and burned it up was the one that was the real God. They took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. They prayed. This was a heck of a prayer meeting, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them. Uh, at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Because they didn't worship the true God. They worshiped a false God. They were committed to praying. I mean, you could say they're more committed to praying than we are in some ways. They prayed all day. They even cut themselves. They, they, they kind of danced around the altar they made. They prayed and prayed and prayed. They prayed louder. It says they raved on. But what does it say twice in the text? Twice. But there was no no voice and no one answered. It's like other than their praying, you can hear a pin drop. It's like no, they're, they're knocking in nobody's home. They're calling and the phone just keeps on ringing because they're not calling a real God. They prayed to a false God who was, prou- who was powerless to answer. And they thought they could manipulate their God by multiplying words and using vain repetitions. That's what idolaters do. It's like rubbing the, the lamp of the genie. If I do this enough, God's, God's going to do X, Y, or Z. Brothers and sisters, we must not pray to the true and living God as if he were an idol, as if he were a false god like Baal, who must be manipulated. You and I have, in Christ, we have access, the writer of Hebrews says, to the throne of what? The throne of grace. Not, not a make-believe throne. The throne of grace. And we who have such free access to the throne of grace must not pray like the heathen prophets of Baal. We must pray like children of God in Jesus Christ. Some have taught that this passage forbids us to ever repeat the same thing twice, to to pray pray for something more than once. Maybe you've heard someone tell you, oh, if you pray for something more than once, it shows a lack of faith. If you really trust God, you'll pray it once and leave it. Does the Bible teach that? No, the, the Bible teaches us to persevere in prayer, Christ himself taught that we should persevere in prayer. Remember the parable of the old widow who came to the judge and kept knocking at the door at midnight? So that she's not going to stop until you give me justice. What happened? That, that judge who feared neither God or man finally gave up and gave in. He didn't fear God and he gave in. He said, how much better is God than that unjust judge? First Thessalonians 5.17 tells us to pray without ceasing. I don't know about you, my vocabulary is not that great. If I prayed all the time, I'm going to repeat myself a few times. 
We have the Lord's Prayer. How many times in Scripture? Twice. Matthew and also in Luke. Once in our text, it's given as a pattern for prayer. Pray like this. And once actually as an actual form in Luke chapter 11, verses 2 to 4, he says, when you pray, he literally says, say this. There's nothing wrong with repeating and praying the Lord's Prayer verbatim. Jesus himself prayed the same thing three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, 44 says, So he left uh, he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Some have even taught that the Lord's Prayer in worship, as we prayed this morning, is an example of meaningless repetition. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus did not forbid repetition in prayer with one breath, only to command it in the next. We can make, we can use the Lord's Prayer in a vain way. We can make it a vain repetition, but it is not inherently a vain repetition to pray it sincerely and from the heart with understanding. Well, that brings us to the third thing in our text. Uh, thankfully, the Lord Jesus did not just tell us how, how not to pray. He also gave us instruction about how to pray, how we should pray. And what is Jesus' solution for keeping us from praying like hypocrites and like heathen? Well, two things, two things. First, before he gets to the Lord's Prayer, he points us to the character and perfections of God. He points throughout our text to the character and perfections of our God. In other words, right theology should help us pray. You ever think theology is not very practical? It's a lot more practical than we think it might be. Jesus reminds us that we who are in Christ pray to God as our what? repeats it a few times in the text. As our Father, our Father in heaven, what? Sees in secret and will reward us. And he, our Father, knows what we need before we ask him, he says. When he says that our Father knows what we need, he's not just reminding us of God's omniscience. God knows all things. Does God know all things? Yes, God knows everything. He's reminding us not just of God's omniscience, but that God cares for us. And why does God care for us? Because in Christ, he is our heavenly father. He's reminding us of our adoption as Christ's children, as God's children through faith in Jesus Christ. We should pray. If you are in Christ today, you should pray confident that God is your father and that because he is your father, he cares for your needs because of that. God is 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 no... Uh, he's a much better father than we are to our own children on our best day. We should not pray to God thinking that we are better fathers or mothers to our children than God is to us. This brings to mind one of my favorite quotes from my all-time favorite Christian book. Uh, in his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes this, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. That's a convicting uh, and comforting thing to say. If you want to judge how well you understand Christianity, find out or think about how much you make of the thought of being God's child in Christ and having God the one true and living God who made all things as your Father. But what's the second thing Jesus gives us here in our text to help us not to pray like heathen and like hypocrites? It's the Lord's Prayer. And he introduces it to us with these words. This, then, is how you should pray. He says, when you pray, don't do this. When you pray, don't do this. 
This is how you pray. And he, he, he wants to get our attention when he says that. This then is how you should pray. Thank God he has not left us in the dark as to how we should pray. He's given us by his grace the pattern by which we should model all of our prayers. The Shorter Catechism says this. It says, The whole word of God is of use to direct us in prayer. But the special rule of direction is that form of prayer which Christ taught his disciples, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. In other words, the Lord Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer uh, as our special rule of direction for prayer. I remember years ago, uh, the prayer of Jabez was the, was the hot thing that came out. There were all kinds of books. I don't know how you can write so many books on such a short thing in the scripture, but uh, this was the biggest selling thing in all the Christian stores. I heard sermon series on it. It's as if somebody finally discovered the secret to prayer, and the whole time I kept thinking, you know, we have a pattern prayer, and nothing wrong with the prayer of Jabez as it's written in scripture. I don't know about the books that were written on it, but, but the Lord's prayer is our pattern prayer, and everything else is subservient to to that, I thought it was strange that we would, we would neglect the one that Jesus specifically gave us for one that uh, the applications that I read of it were dubious at at best. In Luke eleven two, Jesus tells us that we are to pray this prayer verbatim when He says, "When you pray, say this." He's given us this prayer to help us in our prayers. Now, the Lord's prayer is rather brief, but it contains everything that we need to know in order to pray. Rightly, there's no aspect, there's really no aspect of prayer that's not dealt with in this short passage. There's no human need or concern that's not addressed. The glory of the name of God, the kingdom of God, the, the will of God are all addressed. Our daily needs, our daily bread, the forgiveness of our sins, our need to forgive each other, help in avoiding sin, lead us not into temptation, uh, protection from the evil one. All these things are the things that should be front and center, foremost, in our prayers, and they are all covered here for us in brief in the Lord's Prayer. You will spend the rest of your life learning this prayer and and mining its Mm -hmm. depths and trying to understand it and apply it uh, in your prayers, and you'll never come to the end of it, never stop benefiting from it. Notice where the prayer begins. What's the first request? It isn't very obvious sometimes, the way we say it from the King James. When I was a kid, I always thought that Hallowed be thy name was a statement of fact that you were saying, Our Father who art in heaven, by the way, God, in case you didn't know, your name is holy. That's that's the way I thought for years. Then I realized later on in life that that was the first request. Let your name be hallowed. God's glory, the glory of God's name, is the first concern, uh, the first request found in the Lord's Prayer. Notice the first three requests, in a sense, the first half of the Lord's Prayer deals with God first. God's the glory of God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. Not until halfway through the prayer do our needs enter the picture. We should take note of that. Not only does God's glory and the glory of his name, that it might be hallowed, come first in sequence, first in order, it comes first in priority as well. You know, in a lot of ways, it's a mirror image of the Ten Commandments. The first half or the first table of the Ten Commandments, what does it deal with? God first. How do you love God? First, no other gods before him, no idols, don't take his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Then he goes to loving your neighbor. Honor father and mother, don't murder, don't commit adultery, and and all the rest. Well, the Lord's Prayer is the same way. God comes first, and God must come first in our prayers as well. God's glory, that 
the hallowing of his name, that his name might be revered, is to be our chief concern and the thing that guides and controls all of our prayers and requests. Pray for your daily bread. There's nothing unspiritual about praying for your daily needs. I know people that that would tell you the opposite. They'll say, oh, to to ask for things is unspiritual. No. if, If it's big enough, what does Philippians 4 say? If it's big enough to worry about, it's big enough to pray about. Don't be anxious for anything. But in all things, lift up your your request to God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. But what comes first? The glory of God. And then our needs, even our daily bread. Pray for your daily bread. Jesus tells you to do it. Pray for your daily bread, but always do so in the context of God's glory, God's kingdom, and God's will. It's as if you're saying, if it would glorify your name, provide my next meal. Enable me to keep living in this world. Now the key to the Lord's Prayer and, and really the, the entire Sermon on the Mount is something that's it's all through it's all through the Sermon on the Mount, all three chapters it comes up over and over again, and that's the fatherhood of God. Take a moment to read through those three chapters, maybe this afternoon, Matthew five through seven. It wouldn't take you very long. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And notice how many times the word Father is found in reference to our God. It's By my count, it's 12 times just in chapter 6. That's a lot. I think Jesus is trying to get something through to us. How do we make sure we don't pray like hypocrites or pagans? The very first thing is that we need to make sure that we aren't hypocrites or pagans. We need to make sure that our religion is not just for show, that we're not just going through the motions, even if they're the right motions at the, quote, right church. You can be a member in good standing at the right church, going through the right motions, and still be a pagan, and still be a hypocrite. The key to prayer, the real key to prayer, the first thing you have to have straight, is having the the true and living God, the sovereign creator and Lord of all, actually having him as your heavenly father. And how does that happen? How do you come to have God as your heavenly father? It's only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, that you are redeemed from your sin and adopted into the family of God as his child. God is not the father in the redemption sense of all people. He's the father of those who come to him by faith in Christ. So the first thing to not pray like a hypocrite or a heathen is to have God as your father through faith in Jesus Christ. May the Lord Jesus be pleased to renew our minds in this coming year. May he transform our lives by that renewal of our minds. May he reform and revive our prayer lives so that we might be uh, as his house, which is his church, we might be, as the Bible says, a house of prayer for all the nations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you uh, have have made your throne of grace uh, open to us, that the throne that would have been a throne of judgment to us is, becomes the throne of grace uh, in Jesus Christ to those who are in him by faith, that we can come to you at all times, at any time, in any situation, and make our needs and requests known to you. We thank you that we can cast our cares on you, knowing that we that you care for us, and we know that you care for us so much because you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live and die in our place, that we might be forgiven all of our sins and accepted by you as righteous in your sight, not for any righteousness that we have, because we have none. We are full of sin and iniquity, Lord, and you know more, more than us the depth and, and number of our sins, but... You accept us as righteous in your sight because you accept us in Jesus Christ, your Son, the one who is without spot or blemish, the one who always lived to do your will, 
the one to whom doing your will was his meat and drink. Lord, we thank you that you accept us in him, that you forgive all of our sins in him. Uh, Lord, and we thank you that in Christ we can come to you and call upon you as our Heavenly Father. We thank you that even your spirit that you send uh, among us and in us, the one who you seal us for the day of redemption with, that he, he cries out in us, Abba, Father, that he causes us to cry out to you as our Father by the spirit of adoption. Lord, we thank you for this great privilege. We know that we take it for granted. We don't think of it as much or as often as we should. We ask that you would uh, work in us by your spirit. Give us understanding. Open our eyes that we might see the great privilege we have of being called the children of God through faith in Christ that we might see the great privilege we have of calling upon you at all times for help in time of need. And we ask that you would help us to conform our prayers more and more to this great pattern prayer, the Lord's Prayer, that we might not pray in vain, that we might not pray as hypocrites or as heathen, but pray as your children, that we might see you hear and answer. Lord, we thank you that we serve a God who hears and answers prayer, Lord. And we do pray for anyone here this morning that is yet in their sins and does not have the the right to call upon you as, as, as their father, that you might open their eyes even today, that they might see their sin, their need for you as the Savior, that they might call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and be able to be uh, have confidence in calling upon you as their father, that they might be able to pray the rest of their days and know that, you're, that you hear and answer. We pray that you might do all these things and glorify your great name in doing that, for it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.